So what was the name of your your first band and like what was in that set list and you know what I mean? Are you ready? My first band, we were called Mephistopheles. Whoa! <laughs> You're freaking me out. Bald and beautiful, just like me. <laughs> Joe Satriani, the Satchman, is one of the greatest guitar players in the universe and at the highest level imaginable. I mean, he's created his own style of playing, his own sound, his own language on the guitar, which is not an easy thing to achieve. Joe has 15 Grammy nominations, sold over 10 million albums, making him the best-selling instrumental rock guitarist of all time. That's pretty heavy. The first time I got to play with Joe was when we were jamming with Mick Jagger, you know, the lead singer from the Stones. And Mick was looking for a drummer and a bass player to, to make his next record and go on tour with him. And Joe was already playing with him. And Joe had hair back then. I might have had too, but I can't remember. All right, let's fast forward to many years later. I did a U.S. and European tour with a badass supergroup called Chickenfoot. Now, Chickenfoot is this supergroup with Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony from Van Halen and Joe Satriani on guitar and Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers on drums. Now, Chad had to go back to his day job, the Chili Peppers, and thank God he suggested I replace him, which was cool. Now, a few years later, Joe invited me to go on the Experience Hendrix tour with him and with Doug Pinnock from King's X, which was a badass power trio. And all three of us were these bald guys, so I called ourselves the Bald Amigos. Anyway, finally, I recorded Joe's last two records, Shapeshifting and The Elephants of Mars, and have been touring the world with him ever since. So, the bad, beautiful, and badass, Joe Satriani. Oh, Kenny, thank you. I feel so much better hearing all that coming out of your mouth like that. That's great. You've motivated me. And you know, even though I've had a lot of this really fantastic wine, it's my wine, by the way, as you can tell from, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I bought a bottle of your wine. It might be a little early for drinking, but you know. <laughs> you know, I was listening to what you were saying and I thought, day job, isn't it funny? We play at night. So why don't they call it a night job? I don't know. Oh my God. Just I never even thought of that. For your yeah. millions of, of viewers to uh, to think about. It's really a night job, isn't it? Yeah, it's a night job. That's, <laughs> after all this time, I never even thought about that. <laughs> uh, how are you, Kenny? I'm good, man. You know, I was thinking, you no, know, I, was, I was practicing uh, some of the songs we're going to do, uh, you know, on tour. And I was thinking, you know, I mean, the coolest thing for me is like, um, when you make a record with somebody and then you get to go on tour and play that music. And that's what makes it feel like I'm in a band. And I really do feel like I'm in a band with you, which is, it, it's just more complete. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The communication, camaraderie, the commitment to, uh, to uh, be courageous enough to go out and play these songs in new ways. Because I always think when we're in the studio, you know, you guys are so professional, especially you. And you come in, you look at a chart you've written, you're listening to the band play for the very first time. And in an hour, you're giving us the most incredible performance. However, it is your first hour doing it, you know? And so when we go out on tour, we can finally relax and go, 
could have done this, could have done that. And we all give each other space, you know, to try all the different ways we could have played that song and, and added to it. And you learn as you play for an audience, you go, wow, that, that worked a little better. Maybe I should do that again. And that's what I think makes that band feeling. It's hard to explain, isn't it? It's just a great. Well, feeling. the thing that's amazing about you I mean, you know me in football. You're like, uh, you know, Mahomes from Kansas City or, or Brady. You're the leader. You're the team leader. It's your band. But you're an excellent team player. That's what those guys are. They are part of the team, and they make everybody feel like they're on the team with them, like he's not just a quarterback. You have this incredible team leadership where you make us feel like we're all in it together, yet your name is on the marquee. That's not common usually you know the lead singer goes off after the the show and there's no connection and f for the people listening to this when we're done we have uh, this particular tour we're doing you know it's just an evening with joe satriani and so we do a set and then there's an intermission and then we do the second set after the set we all meet we don't even go to our dressing room we're meeting in the hallway discussing the show how's it going for you and this is all coming from you joe this is like you're the leader so you set the tone, and that makes you feel so, I'll tell you, it makes me play better. That's the point. You're so gracious in that regard. So you're the team leader, but you're this team player, and it's really exceptional. I mean, and by the way, this allows us, you're so cool, will you allow us to improvise and come up with ideas, and you, you let us experiment within the structure of the songs that we, we've learned. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean... You and everybody in, in the band, Ray and Brian, I mean, incredible musicians. The thought of holding you back is insane. Like, why would you do that, right? You have so much experience. You're all so completely different in the styles that you've grown up playing professionally and listening to and enjoying. So I like the idea that every night we play, you guys are going to throw some other stuff in that's part of your personality. And I get to play around with it and we throw it back and forth. Yeah, and we walk off stage, it's all smiles. We're all real happy because we know we did something. We tried something, we succeeded. It was fun and we get to do it again the next night. You know, uh, I love that. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's it's amazing playing in your band and I feel like I am in your band. So sorry, dude, I'm in your band. <laughs> it's great. If, if I leave it, it's going to be a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now everybody knows you as like this. I mean, you... There's a few guitar players that reinvented the guitar. Obviously, Jimi Hendrix did, Eddie Van Halen, but you've done it too. And everybody knows you're this you know, incredible virtuoso guitar player. I certainly did from years ago. But most people don't know that you were a football player first. And probably, knowing you, you were probably on your way to be in the NFL. <laughs> you are going to be in the NFL. So, so I want to know what made you make that transition from possibly being in the NFL to becoming Joe Satriani, the virtuoso guitar player. But I also want to know what position did you play in football? <laughs> uh, I think I was, uh, I played tight end and, and Ooh, um, badass. you know, what I noticed back then was that first of all, I love football, but at about the same time that I really could apply myself as a, young athlete you know i was on a fitness team i played baseball i was on track i was just i, Jeez, I had no idea i had no yeah, idea i was also starting to be a guitar player made that transition from a failed drummer 
to a guitar player and, and, you know, I play a game and I go like, wow, my fingers hurt. <laughs> what did I do? You know, you're in the game, you forget about it. It's very physical and you have fun, all the hitting and everything, you know, it's all part of the game. So, but I started to see, well, this is not going to be a good thing, protecting my fingers and, and being an effective team member. So I started to notice that. And also at that age, kids who were destined to be six foot five and 300 pounds were starting to get that way, you know? Yeah. 14 years old. I mean, that's, that's when it really starts to happen for guys. So, and I wasn't, you know, and I didn't, I thought, well, I don't want to be the NFL's shortest, <laughs> most collapsible player. <laughs> I'm getting creamed by my teammates, you know? So it was a natural thing. I made, I actually made the transition from football to full-time fitness team. I, they don't have those anymore, but you know, back in, in the old school days uh, at the car place, public high school, we had a great ex-Marine gym teacher. Guy was nuts, but he was a great trainer. And we actually, we went to West Point and we did national competitions. I think we won four years in a row, this little wow. public high school on this. Long Island. So that was great because it was no contact, you know, it was all just running, jumping, push-ups, sit-ups, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was perfect because it kept me in shape for rock and roll. So that was great. You know, I could still be out there playing back then when you could play bars when you were like 15, 16 years old. And I was doing that with different bands, but I was still in really good shape. And eventually though, you know what got is this ironic actually, and you would get this, which is I eventually was presented with a choice, cut my hair or quit the team. And because my hair was really long, I mean, I'd look like Tony Iommi, you know? <laughs> so I was like, I'm not cutting my hair, you know, like rock and roll was my life. I already got the fitness body. So I said goodbye to the fitness team and dedicated myself to my hair, which then fell out. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we, we, that's why I said we're bald and beautiful. Yeah, so... But it's okay. I got a whole collection of hats, every color you can think of. As you know, you've seen me wear them. <laughs> I didn't realize. Oh my God, I'm learning something here. I didn't know that you were the, the jock you were. I was that guy too. But I'll tell you what, the takeaway from all that is the discipline. I mean, once you learn that discipline, you can apply it to anything. And so, you, I mean, obviously you, you were practicing intensely all the time. I mean, well, some point you got to learn that discipline. And so probably you learned it with that Marine, you know, drill sergeant coach, you know, training guy. You know, and that was about my height and he was slim and in, in really great condition, not an ounce of fat on him. And I was the same way. I mean, I was, a, I was a small kid. I wasn't the strongest kid in the class ever, you know, I wasn't the tallest or anything. So I looked at him and I thought, wow, this guy is frightening in what he can do with his body. And, you know, he was a martial arts. Uh, he had a couple of uh, belts in, in different martial arts um, venues. And he was an inspiration because he would show you how to apply yourself, how to have that discipline that you mentioned to work with what you had. And when I started to play, I realized, well, I'm not the fastest guitar player. I'm not the, you know, the guy with the best clothes or hair or loudest amp or anything, but this is what I got. So how do I work with it? And it's that discipline that you can apply, you know, from fitness team, football team, whatever, to work with what you have to the fullest extent every day, a hundred percent drove my family and my friends crazy. Cause I was, you know, I was just maniacal about practicing 
But that's because I knew I had a, I had less to work with, I think, than some other folks. So I, I knew I needed to work harder. Yeah, I can totally relate. But now you said uh, a second ago you started on drums. Yes. Yeah. Was drums your first instrument? Yeah. When I saw, you know, a young kid, youngest of five, and in my family, my other siblings were perfect age for everything that happened late 50s all through the 60s and i was the little kid watching the whole thing happen so when stones and beatles and anywhere from chuck berry to james brown was happening it was happening big time in my house i was too young to you know go to concerts or do anything i was just a little kid but i watched and enjoyed just the the great vibes every time the music was happening in the house and when I saw, you know, the Beatles and the Stones on the Ed Sullivan show, I just wanted to be the drummer. I wanted to be Ringo and Charlie. I just thought that is the greatest thing ever. Now, maybe it's because I was the youngest and I liked the idea of making the most noise in the house I could possibly make. <laughs> but it was slow because I think uh, my dad purchased me a pad and then gave me an empty coffee can as a hi-hat. I had to prove that I was going to practice rudiments. So I'd be in the little room and you'd deep, 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 doing the paradiddles or whatever. And I started taking drum lessons from this guy named Mr. Patricus. That's, I didn't know his first name. He was a jazz drummer and he would come over the house and he started to teach me on the pad. And then I got a snare drum then I got a hi-hat then I got a kick, got a rise cymbal, then a tom-tom and a floor tom. So that's about as big as I got. I worked for about three years and I just, I didn't feel it. Like I didn't feel like I could control all four limbs without spacing out. It was a funny thing to, a realization was that I was not the attentive kind of musician that I could see. Like when I went to school, I saw my teachers, they were very attentive. You know, they'd be reading piano music and they'd just be right on it. And my, my emotions and my brain would drift into what the music meant. And of course, as soon as I did that, you know, the timing would slag or speed up. And I, and I thought, well, I'm not a drummer. I'm not cut out to be that guy that keeps everyone together. I might be cut out to float on top. Wow. That's, that's heavy that you realize that. It was not a fun realization, of course, because you realize, wow, I'm not going to be like, you know, so steady and groovy, you know, like Charlie and Ringo. And then I started to get into the who and Hendrix and, you know, Led Zeppelin. And it was like, whoa, these drummers, they're so different, yet they propel the band. Like the band listens to them, follows them, you know, and yet somehow they're loose and crazy. And that was, I realized that's another level of being a drummer that was beyond me. So it was a good, good thing for me to step back and, and reassess whether I was going to be a professional musician or not. That transition when Hendrix died. And then I just thought, no, I got to do it. I got to play guitar. That's incredible. I didn't realize. So I did the same thing where, you know, we didn't have much money. So I got the snare drum. Then I got the, the cymbal and I was getting them at Manny's. Oh, wow. Yeah. We lived three hours out of the city in the Berkshires, Western Mass. And my parents, they were New Yorkers. So we go down in Manny's and get a snare drum. And the guy at, at, at was it? anyway, at Manny's, he's, my mom said, well, you know, I don't know, Kenny, you know, I was only 10. I don't know if he's going to like this. She said, Mrs. Aronoff, if your son doesn't like this drum, you can bring it back and we'll give you back your money. I think it was $20. <laughs> but um, 
So yeah, I did the same thing piece by piece because they weren't going to buy me a whole drum set. They didn't know. I mean, think about this. When we were kids, we didn't know. Nobody knew what our trajectory was going to be. We just say, hey, look at Joey. He's playing guitar. You know, it's just that. Who knew? But so like, you know, you mentioned uh, listening to all that different music. Back then, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, rock and roll, obviously we were drawn to rock and roll, but you were listening to all kinds of stuff, especially because you had older siblings. And radio back then would play everything, right? So what were you listening to mostly? Yeah, the explosion of FM radio back then in the mid to late 60s. You have to understand when, when the older siblings would leave in the morning to go to school and I hadn't started school yet, I would play all their records just all day long. All the singles, I didn't care if it was Dave Clark 5 or all the Motown albums, whatever. I just played music all the time. My parents were listening to jazz music all the time. So I heard Miles Davis and I heard classical music. My mother liked playing Mozart and Beethoven. And, and so I'd hear all that. Curiously, no opera. They didn't like opera for some reason, but I heard all the, the great classic musicians. I heard fantastic jazz music, Duke Ellington, you name it, uh, from swing all the way to, through bebop and what was happening in the, in the 60s. And then... I think that my older sisters and their boyfriends took a sort of a curious interest in the fact that I liked all this music that they were listening to. And so they, every time they come over, they say, hey, check this out. Have you, you know, have you ever heard of, you know, The Who? Or have you ever heard of Led Zeppelin or something like that? But it was FM radio, actually. The first time I heard Hendrix, Wind Cries Mary. It's in my brain like some weird kind of colorized Hitchcock film where I'm in the hallway between the kitchen and the and the family room and i'm hearing this sound and i look at the they had a my parents had a big magnavox you know music system you know and a big piece of furniture those things sounded beautiful and there's this fm radio coming through there echoing in the room and i hear hendrix playing wind cries mary and i'm transfixed and it's like tunnel vision and depth of field camera, you know. And I just walk into the room and I'm staring at that and I start saying, what is this? Who is this? What's, what's happening, you know? And I swear my DNA was changed at that moment, just, just being bathed by Hendrix music and that it was so beautiful sounding. The rhythm was just unbelievable. I just don't know how to, ex ex I just still don't know how they did it. I, mean, I just don't know how those three guys, it was so wonderful. And we celebrated that on the, on the Experience Hendrix tour, you know, that, that wonderful group. Well, dude, that, mine was Purple Haze. So like you, I was listening to whatever was on the radio, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, uh, Neil Diamond, the Mamas and the Papas, all the stuff. But when Purple Haze came on, I was like, whoa, what is this? I ripped all my posters down in my bedroom, except for the Jane Fonda one. I kept Jane Fonda there. She was on the beach, you know, with no clothes on. But everything else was Hendrix from that point on. I even put Sun. He played Sun amplifiers, right? Yeah, for a while there. Yeah, he was playing Fenders. Yeah, Sun. So I, uh, it was all Hendrix. That was it. And I remember at Christmas, I was in my room. I was 13. got the Are You Experienced record. And I play one side, flip it, play the other side. And after 24 hours of this, my mom's going, don't you have another record you can play? <laughs> yeah it was like religion right i mean it was like life-changing yeah it's funny how musicians as musicians we will play one song a million times and for us it's a revelation every single time a new set of revelations 
But for people on the other side of the door, they're like, what is wrong with that kid? <laughs> Call the therapist. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first record you ever bought? And what was the first concert you ever went to? I'm curious. Uh, first uh, single that I, I bought was Communication Breakdown by Led Zeppelin. Now, I have to qualify that by saying that I was given all the records that my older siblings got tired of, which was a treasure trove. I mean, you know, I did the four of them were going through music. And you know that period when you're like, you know, from 10 to 20, you know, you're a couple of different people and you don't want to know about the 10 year old self when you're 14. You just you want to forget about when you were a kid and so on and so forth. So I remember getting 12 by five uh, by the Rolling Stones from my sisters because they were over it. And to me, it was, you know, golden. It was, I listened to that record a million times until I just wore the, every album I wore out because our little portable uh, record player was cruel to every disc you put on, there, you know, the heavy arm, you know, didn't bother me. So I listened to all those singles. That's how I got into Kinks and Dave Clark Five, all the British Invasion stuff. The Motown stuff was more on LPs, and my middle sister Marion was really into that. She was she was more of a dancer, and she was an acoustic guitar player, so she had that rhythm in her, and she appreciated that kind of format. And so, I think the first album set of albums I got were given to me. They were the the first Hendrix album, and then the second, and then the third. So I didn't really start buying albums. I think until. I don't know, maybe I was 13 or something like that. So it was just singles and I just kept getting everything. Uh, you know, my brother would give me a John Lee Hooker record. My sister would give me her Led Zeppelin album. And I'd get, you know, James Taylor, Carol King from the older sisters, you know, as they went through stuff. Wow. And I had all the jazz records. So I could listen to West Montgomery and Miles Davis and just unbelievable, beautiful collection of jazz music that, although had nothing to do with, my age group, you know, and I was just a rock and roll kid. I still loved it because it was instrumental and I didn't have to deal with the words and, and, and you know, the boy girls, there's so many boy girl songs back then and very few songs about issues of the world. So when I finally got to hear jazz instrumentals, I thought, oh, this is a relief. I can concentrate on what they're playing. Yeah. So I think the first concert was Chicago. Uh, they were called the Chicago transit authority at that theater and where we played uh doug yourself and i we played at the westbury music fair oh whoa was that the one in the circle yeah yeah it spins you saw chicago there oh. yeah they were amazing i remember i mean poor terry kath was standing right next to his marshall stack he had nowhere to move because <laughs> that stage is small right i know it's small. it was amazing he sounded like hendrix i just it was I was floored. And then maybe two weeks after that, at the same venue, I saw Jethro Tull. They totally blew my mind. I just loved it. Was that, that. the uh, stand-up album? The stand-up album tour? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that tour. Yeah. Yeah. Just I saw them opening up for the news. They were so exotic. Yeah. You know? <laughs> when you're a kid growing up in the States and in New York, that was, I'd never seen that. Whatever that, whoever they were. They look like yeah. they crawled out of a wood cutting of some sort of medieval, <laughs> you know, British folklore. And there they were on stage playing absolutely amazing. Just, just great. That's a great start, man. Yeah. And then I think 
The third one was Steve Miller at the Fillmore. Talk about full circle. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I got to tell you this funny story. So I played with Steve quite a few times over the years, and we did a show with him back in 1990. We did some openings for him. And uh, that was the first time I met him. So we, we go way back. So I had to tell him the story of when I saw him play in 1970 at the Fillmore East in New York City. And uh, I was up in the balcony with my older sisters and their boyfriends. And I just thought the show was the most magical thing ever, you know, for a little kid. I just turned 14, I think. Pot smoke everywhere, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, clouds, Mungo Jerry. Do you remember Mungo Jerry? Uh, in the summer time when the wind oh yeah okay so and then Steve Miller when he came out it was kind of heavy and it was a great band just he was tremendous I was a big fan of of his records because my older siblings had you know given them to me so I kind of knew who he was in his catalog so anyway I tell Steve like I saw you when I was fourteen and I've been such a huge fan this is so great that we're playing together. And he goes, where'd you see me? And I tell him the story and he tells me the backstory, which is crazy. So, okay. So I don't know if you remember, but I was managed by Bill Graham. So I knew Bill for quite a few years before he passed away. Bill was a very forward thinking promoter. He would do anything to make shows really great. And he was tough on the staff and the bands and everyone because he just wanted great shows. So it turns out Steve tells me this idea that Bill comes to him and uh, he wants to speak you know, spice up the show. And he gave a bunch of red uh, plastic clown noses to the audience right before Mungo Jerry came out and asked the Mungo Jerry guys to put it on when they played their big single, because it was a huge hit single at the time Yeah, in the summertime. So of course, when Steve Miller comes out to play and the gag is over, I mean, I was immune to this because I was in the balcony, so I didn't see really what was going on there. So Steve tells me he gets out there, they start playing. Hendrix had just died, so he was in a serious mood. It must have been, uh, you know, late September or something like that. And uh, he comes out and he he does like a tribute to Hendrix, and then he starts the set. But they're, you know, they're not jumping around trying to get everyone to smile because they're, they've got this heavy feeling about Hendrix dying. The audience, for some reason, decides they want to throw these plastic... <laughs> clown noises on stage during the whole set right but because of where i am and because i'm you know spaced out little kid i just didn't notice any of that i just you know i was up there thinking i'm hanging out with like grown-ups listening to rock music and smelling weed you know that's that's what i remember but the fact that he had such a terrible experience and he said when it was done he chewed bill graham out for that he said why would you do such a thing like to me like Ruin the whole night, you know. It just goes to show you the perspective between the audience and the band is so different. Incredible. The two different stories from the same night, you know. So what was the name of your your first band? And like what was in that set list? And you know what I mean? Are you ready? My first band? We were called Mephistopheles. Whoa! <laughs> You're freaking me out. Yes, Mephistopheles. I I don't know where I have it. I still have our business card. No <laughs> kidding. Yeah. Available for like parties and whatever concerts. What was on that set list? What songs did you play? Oh, James Gang, uh, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin. 
we could barely play. I mean, really, it fizzled really quick because I got absorbed into a, uh, another band and they were called Mishwakan, which is how we pronounce Mohaka uh, on Long Island. <laughs> and why did we call our band Mishwakan? It was because we heard that that's where the best weed came from. So <laughs> yeah, these were slightly older guys. They were like one and two years ahead of me in high school. So that's when I really did my first performances, you know, high school dances, battle of bands outdoor the, the, at the park and parties. Fantastic experience for me because that, you know, when you're 14 and you're playing with a 16 year old, the age difference is huge. You know, I just learned that whole idea about playing with people is so important. You don't go up on stage and just play the bit that you worked on at home. You have to forget about that. And you, you have to just play with to get, you have to lock, you know, with everybody in the band. Yeah, that's what I learned. I think that's the next level. It's like when you flip that switch where it's not just about me. It's not just about me. It's about we. You know, it's like suddenly, oh, my part affects that part. That part affects me. And then it's so much better when it's about we, you know. But when you're little, you're thinking you're focusing so much on your instrument. It's all about you. But that's what the big difference is to make that shift. You know, a perfect example of that would be that silly story about the the Steve Miller show where there's so much going on on stage, but there's a little 14 year old in the audience and he's not aware of any of that. <laughs> he's just up there thinking, this is the greatest thing I've ever experienced. I'm at the film or East. I'm watching these great bands. I'm hanging out with cool people. And, you know, and that's what the audience experiences. They experience the whole thing. Even if they're concentrating on the band, they're experiencing the whole band as it comes off stage together, you know? So you're absolutely right. It's, it's not about me. It's about you and me. Forget those other guys, Kenny. It's about you and me. You and me, right. When did you realize I ain't going to be the singer? Or did you always want to be the singer? <laughs> no, never, never. I actually, when... When I was going to Car Place High School, it was still governed by the New York State Board of Regents. So if you were wanting to get uh, credits for college for something that you were working on, like music, you had to go to these Board of Regents where they would test you. It's fantastic. I mean, public schools don't have any money for this anymore. I don't know what happened. It was a teeny little place. Car Place is like two square miles in the middle of uh, the island there. But our music teacher was a, a Juilliard graduate. I mean, it, you know, he was a fantastic pianist and he had a degree from Juilliard and, and he knew he knew his stuff and he was a freaky guy. And he didn't mind that we had hair way down past our shoulders, wore motorcycle boots and played Sabbath and Zeppelin and James Gang and, and all that. He got through to us and I, believe it or not, got accredited singing bass in the chorus. So... I kind of liked all music. I loved standing with, you know, 20 kids and singing some beautiful classical choral music. I'm sure other kids thought it wasn't cool, but I thought it's music. It's beautiful music. And when we sing it right, it's, it's like this beautiful diamond you dig up from the past. You know, some other musician thought of it, made this beautiful thing. I also realized, though, that my range was small. I sang bass in the bass register. I wasn't particularly great at the low notes. And I certainly had a limited high range, but I loved the experience, but I thought I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be 
the Robert Plant guy. I want to be the Jimmy Page guy. And so every band I was in, I would just try to be like Jimmy Page. That fit my personality better. I didn't want to be out front. And the experience of watching Hendrix be tormented by his own success as a stage performer was a lesson I, I took to heart right away. And it, because when he passed away, I read all the stories and I, I was growing up, you know, and I started to realize, wow, these grownups have problems based on what they feel the audience expects of them. And that was a lot to try to understand, like, because I thought, why wouldn't you want to go out and play with your teeth and roll around? Then I started to understand, wow, that that felt demeaning to him. And he wanted people simply to listen to his music. So early on, I thought, I'm not going to start there. I'm going to start hardly moving. I want to be the guys hanging out with the drummer and the bass player. And I'm not going to, uh, if I'm lucky enough to have a career, I certainly don't want people to think that I'm going to set my guitar on fire every night. <laughs> that's me. That's not going to work. I don't have money for all those guitars. Yeah. yeah. And then the whole, you know, spinning the guitar, running around. I just thought I don't want to be a circus performer. To me, that killed my hero. So I thought just avoid that, just concentrate on the music, try to reach people with, with the melody and the harmony and just be the best musician you can. You know, that, that was the important lesson I learned from that whole era. Well, that definitely worked out for you. Okay, so I've done two records with you and both of them to me were some of the best stuff you've done. I mean, shape-shifting was like this planet, but then the elephants of Mars was like, we went to a whole nother planet. I mean, so I'm just curious, like, so when you write song, when you, when you come up with a, okay, I'm going to do this record. I mean, what inspires you? Do you have a whole method or you just fall into it? I kind of fall into it. I, I wait until I start to get an unstoppable kind of uh, inspiration inside that's saying, this sounds cool. This feels right. This interests me, you know, these some could be some unusual uh, rhythms or uh, harmonic structures that seem to just fit with how I feel, you know, my spirit at the moment. Sometimes it comes right as I'm finishing an album. Sometimes I have to wait like six months to clear out the album. Like The Elevates of Mars was a very big, diverse album. I covered so much ground that I think getting over it was way harder than some of the other records I've done that were more narrow in their stylistic scope, you know, like one kind of sound. I kind of felt that way. Like after I did Surfing with the Alien, it was so oriented towards celebrating rock music that I missed. You know, I just put a lot of celebratory kind of stuff in there that when I finished recording it, I already, I just started writing Flying in a Blue Dream almost right away. And that album became expansive in style and scope. So I was just the other day, I was beginning to feel like I'm onto a new thing now, but it took how many months, you know, a year for me to get to that point where I thought, okay, next thing I do, I want it to be raw for some reason. So that's the only indication I have right now is to make it more live and raw. So it's good that we're going on tour. Yeah. Well, dude, I mean, the elephants of Mars, I mean, damn, that was... To me, that was your heaviest record because it was so complex and so diverse. Everything was kind of serious, but not in a bad way. It just was like intense. But maybe it had something to do with we were going through that that horrible pandemic too. You know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think 
being at home and separated from everybody gave me more time to reflect. I certainly so bummed out that we didn't get to tour shapeshifting right on time. You know, we were, everyone was like packed and ready to go to the airport. I was really hard to, to figure out a way to get all that energy to dissipate somehow. So I think that in a way that when I started to realize, okay, is there, what's bad about recording albums and how does this new situation we're in, although it's horrible, how will it help alleviate some of the things that I think is negative about, you know, making albums. And the only thing I really came up with was the time element. Like when we were doing shape-shifting at Jim Scott's, you know, you have to rent the building and Jim's available for only certain times. And then there, your career and Chris's career and everyone's got gigs. And so the scheduling is important. And then when we get there, we've got to work really hard. All the music is new to you guys and, and to Jim and his, and his crew. So that is the thing. It's that time crunch where the artist who's written the songs is like every day is going, is that the take? Is that, is that the definitive version of this song? And because it's new to me as well, I, I don't know. So there's always compromises and guesses going on. And then you got to deliver the album. And so I thought, well, okay, now here we are. I'm starting the Elephants of Mars. No release schedule. I don't have to get in and out of any studio. And, uh, you know, if you call me up and say, Joe, I can't do the drums until next month, I go, that's okay. Take your time. <laughs> and that never happens, right? In the normal record business, everything is like, you know, get it done now. So I think that changed how deeply I went inside of myself to write a song. So like if, if it's something like Faceless, I might've thought if I only had a week to write, rehearse, and then record the band, it wouldn't have had the same heaviness to it because we would have to move so quickly. But having months to work on it, I could walk into my studio week after week and listen to it and say to myself, it's not emotional enough. Like, you know, tweak it here. Maybe that that part's too short. That's too long. Maybe I should play fewer notes here. And so by the time I would deliver it to you and the other guys, you would have heard something that I'd really poured over, but not in a perfectionist point of view, just in a, in a uh, compositional and emotional approach to it. Because as you know, I told you and everybody else, play a million different ideas, whatever you want. And in your case, Eric was there to record all your different ideas. And we could all sit back and take a couple of weeks or months to figure out what is the coolest performance and how did Kenny surprise us? You know, let's use that one, that kind of thing. And again, in a normal set of uh, recording sessions, you'd, you would never have that luxury. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the coolest things was when you called me up uh, and said, well, we're not going on tour, but I'm going to start another record. <laughs> and that was so, it was like bittersweet. Yeah, that was the coolest thing because every day I'd come to my studio during the pandemic. That's what I did anyway. But that was a blast because, yeah, some of the songs I revisited a bunch of different times per your discussion with Eric and my discussion with Eric. And your, <laughs> they didn't sound like demos to me, but what I was getting from you layers and layers of of guitars and a really obvious composition. It was very clear what you were trying to do, which was very exciting. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it's all started from you. Then it came to me and we got my stuff done. Then it went to 
Brian Bellers on bass, and then it went to Ray, maybe with a little overlap. Yeah, most of the time, that was exactly how it happened. There were a few things where we got Ray's solos on kind of like uh, demos, but when I work at home, I'm starting a Pro Tools session file at 96K, so everything's a keeper right from the very beginning. And as you said before, all the different impressions about what the guitar could do, what the keyboards could do, uh, a make-believe bass part that I'll put on there and, and some drum loops, you know. But the structure of the song is pretty close. Uh, the tempos are locked down and there are lots of performances that the other musicians can draw from. So, you know, Eric was our, our center guy who would put all these impressions together every time someone would send him something. But we were using email. First, I'd send a text, a, a track and say, Ray, do you think you could solo here? And he'd be like, oh, cool, send the track. And Eric would put together, you know, a Pro Tools session and send it to Australia or New Zealand, wherever, or Tasmania, wherever he was. And he'd wind up just doing it wherever he was, hotel room or in his home studio. He emailed it back to us and then we'd go back and forth like, well, where are we going to put it? That's amazing. We have to use it, you know? So yeah, sometimes you would hear a solo, which normally you'd put on last, you know, but you'd hear it first work though, because I think when all of us heard Ray for the first time, I think it was on Sailing the Seas of Ganymede, we all went like, oh my God, who is this kid? You know, I remember him sending the track back and he soloed in the wrong place. But immediately after hearing it one time, I called Eric and I said, you know, you know, he soloed in the wrong place. And he goes, yeah, and I get, but we're just going to leave it right there because whatever's happening there, that is so like freaky. So I'll rewrite the second half of the song so that Ray's solo makes sense. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing we, we could do that because we, we had the freedom of time. Yeah, that was amazing. So, um, all right. <laughs> Painting. Yes. How did that happen? <laughs> How did know, that happen? When, when did I it happen? I mean, right behind. I'm just, I'm still working on him. I'm not sure about the pink yet and the face. But. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's like, I mean, were you a painter when you were a kid or just you fell into it? I mean, what's the story? Well, uh, my two oldest sisters are about nine years ahead of me. They were art majors and they, they got degrees in fine art. And so ever since I was a little kid, they were painting and drawing in the house and there was materials everywhere. Uh, both my parents worked. So my older siblings had to take care of me, you know, when I was a really young kid. And I think the way they used to do it would be they'd give me a pad and, and a bunch of colored pencils and say, go sit and, you know, be quiet, go over there and draw. <laughs> so out of necessity, to, you know, to to keep me from bouncing off the walls. They had me drawing and I loved it. And my brother and I both did it. We used to draw rat fink stuff all the time. Oh yeah, rat fink. Funny car kind of stuff. And I just always went in that direction. Like whenever I could draw, I got into it. But as we you know, discussed the football, the fitness team, rock and roll, those became priorities to me, but I always was drawing and, and it didn't really click until I was I was in LA recording uh, the extremist album and I was down at La Park. Uh, I knew we stayed there a million times. I lived there for about five months trying to get the extremist album done. And I was drawing all the time. And and that was the first time where we took some of my drawings and put them into the the album and the CD package. And then the Dario suggested we do some stuff with straps and picks and then 
the drawings wound up in posters and t-shirts and hats. You know, then I started to digitize them and they wound up in the backdrop during the live shows. And about eight years ago, uh, I, I turned to Rubina, uh, my wife, Rubina, for, for those people who don't know, Kenny, you know her quite well. Oh, she's amazing. She's the coolest. And she's got a degree in art as well. So I turned to her and I said, Rubina, help me. I want to paint canvases. I don't know the first thing about brushes and acrylic oil and solvents. And so typical fashion, she said, well, here's all the stuff. Go, you know, <laughs> just just go make a mess. It doesn't matter what you do. Just take because she knew from scribblings all over the house, everything I've done, that there was no controlling me that I she just had to give me the opportunity. And, you know, so I didn't even know what what canvases to buy. I mean, I didn't know anything about the basics of, of being a painter. I just knew how to to be creative with it, you know. But it's important if you're going to sell art that you you do it with the proper tools. <laughs> so so there's some peel and made and all that kind of stuff. So I started with basically my odd faces. And then I started to get into work a little bit more realism into it. And then a funny thing happened years into my development as, as a painter. Uh, I met the guys, Corey and Ravi from scene four art collective down in LA. And as you may know, they do this series of really cool art pieces where they film a musician playing in the dark, wearing gloves that have LED lights on their hands and maybe other parts of their body. And as they perform, they do these time exposure shots that aren't completely obscuring the musician, but the trails of their movement winds up being a beautiful artistic statement of, of their musical energy. So I spent a day in the dark <laughs> playing my guitar really loud with these gloves on. And during one of the breaks, I was talking to Corey about the artwork I was doing, that I was on this journey last number of years trying to teach myself how to work with canvases. And he immediately said, we should do something together. Let's, you know, send us photos of your artwork. We'll put them into our you know, scene four machine and we'll create these prints and we'll send them back to you and then you can paint on them. And I was like, whoa, that's so crazy. I never thought of that. I was looking at a blank canvas and things went really well. We had a show actually when in 2019 when we were doing the Experience Hendrix tour and that got me very excited because you know, as musicians, we do concerts and we go to radio stations and, you know, we have ways of being public with our music, but walking into a gallery and seeing your artwork and talking to people like it's a jail party, I just felt that the, the exchange of emotion and creativity to a fan right there was really powerful. It was like, you know, doing an intimate concert for people or something like that. It was just really fulfilling artistically. From there, they introduced me to Christian O'Mahony, who runs the Wentworth Gallery. And they've got, I think, 10 galleries from Miami all the way up to New Jersey. And that blew my mind because he said, well, you know, we'd love to have like 300 pieces. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like, how do I do pieces? You know, I was looking at my art room and I, I think I had maybe 50 and, <laughs> and they were like, no one would buy those. They're like really weird looking faces, you know? So. We started down that road of like, well, okay, how does a beginning painter 
start, you know, how many realistically can I do? And then can I concentrate on things that are, you know, part of my life? So we started doing guitars and working in my themes of outer space and aliens and, and natural things around uh, just being an American and, and growing up here. And all of a sudden I'm doing gallery shows. We're selling hundreds of paintings. And uh, just this past weekend, I was in Atlantic City and, and King of Prussia, and I was actually performing in the art gallery on guitars that I painted. Just, I mean, <laughs> the experience, it blew my mind because at one point I'm about to play, I think, um, If I Could Fly, you know, and I'm standing there holding a guitar that's freaky looking because I painted everything on it. And there's a small group of people, maybe 25, you know, super intimate, small amps, everything's pretty quiet. And I'm looking around the room and, and all over the place, I just like the freakiest things that I paint. And I was just thinking, wow, this is so crazy that I can still, I almost like went back in time to when I was a little kid and I was in my bedroom and there was, you know, Alice Cooper and Hendrix posters on the wall and I'm playing my Fender <laughs> Telecaster thinking one day when I'm a grown up, you know, I'll, I'll be able to do this all over the world. And it was a great moment just to, you know, and to hear the stories from the art patrons that, you know, this couple used always with me, always with you for their wedding song. And, and this person, you know, uh, had a connection with this song and that's, and you just, it always touches your heart. It's always a very emotional experience for me. And, the, and having the art there makes it like double, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to explain. I'm sorry if I'm going on and on with my words, but it, it's, a, it's a beautiful experience for me each time I do these things. That's so cool that you've fallen into another thing that's so exciting and brought those two worlds together. But do you, do you feel pressure? Like all of a sudden, well, we need uh, 200 paintings where, you know, you, you know, you just kind of do it when you want to do it. Now, all of a sudden, holy, it's a job. You know, as just like anything else, it's teamwork. You can't do anything by yourself in this world. You know, you really don't. You get raised by people who love you and, and you work with your friends. Hopefully you get to work with friends people you really love. And this thing I'm doing now is the same thing. So here's a typical example. We wanted to paint a whole bunch of guitars and my partners in, in the music industry, uh, the Ibanez, were kind enough to sell us these, a whole bunch of guitars at cost. The gallery buys the guitars. They ship them to me. I have to take them apart, sand them, paint them, but they're not sealed. So I have to send them off to uh, this really great painter na named uh, Jerry Dorsch. And he does this beautiful sealing of everything so that after he seals it, any musician can take that guitar to a gig and it's the artwork's not going to rub off or anything like that, you know, and it's protected from UV rays and everything. So that's, you know, I'm already, I've got partners who have helped, you know, me along the way. Then I get the guitars back. I put them together just a little. I check everything, make sure you know, if I need to touch something up, I do that. Then I have to send it to Gary Brower, my luthier. Now, Gary puts it together and makes sure that it's totally pro, like anybody could pick it up. Like Right, you, of course. Yeah. And you, you could play <laughs> the Star Spangled Banner at the Raiders game, and it would sound great, and it would look awesome. And uh, <laughs> Let's try that. Let's, let's, let's try, try that. that. <laughs> no one will notice. 
right? I'll, do, I'll tell you what, I'll hold the guitar, but you stand behind me and play. I'll do that. We, we should try that. And, you know, so then I get them back and then I, I have to show up and show the people, yeah, this thing is freaky. It's a beautiful guitar, but guess what? I can play Satch Boogie on it. And it sounds just like all the rest of my guitars. And, uh, but when you, when you stop for a second and you look back in time, you go, wow, this took teamwork, you know, great talented people helping me eventually make this guitar. So yeah, when I say things like, yeah, I did this, it's like, I'm actually saying me and the team <laughs> helped it together. You know, it always takes teamwork. Totally. I'm, I'm all about teamwork. You know I mean? I, I get, I mean, teams win Super Bowls, not individuals, you know, and in World Series. I mean, this is a whole team. That's incredible. Now, do you use your signature guitar? How many signature cars do you have with Ibanez? Ah, uh, I try to keep it down to about 200. I mean, who can play 200 guitars, right? So are they all your signature model? Yes. Yeah. They are. Wow. Yeah. I used to have a big, a big collection of vintage guitars, maybe going back 20 years, but I'm a terrible collector because I relate to instruments on an emotional level. I pick it up. If I, something great happens on that instrument, then we bond. And if it, it doesn't fight me in any way physically, and I hear sounds that I like, I fall in love with that guitar. It doesn't matter if it's brand new, if it costs $400 or $40,000, I don't care really. But if I pick up a you know, $350,000 Les Paul and nothing happens, I'm not impressed. Uh, because I'm not a collector, I'm not thinking about investment in the future or anything like that. So I just get rid of that stuff or I never buy it. So my vintage collection is teeny now, maybe 10 guitars. There's only two or three that I've had for more than 10 years because they were great. They were, you know, ugly looking things beat to all hell, you know. But when I played them, they worked and I put them on just about every album since I picked them up since the early 90s. So most of the guitars I've got are like these, you know, chrome and all the different colors that uh, we work on. Every guitar that we sell, there must be eight prototypes and I and they're kind of Frankenstein looking. <laughs> so I wind up with them and they're, you know, they're in a, a safe location and I, I refer to them, but they I don't play them. I play the final product. Yeah. So I'll, I'll bring maybe eight or nine on tour you know, as backup, sometimes you need a guitar in the afternoon for a press event and, or sometimes, uh, you know, guitars don't react well to a new environment because it's more humid than normal or drier or something. So sometimes it's nice to have a secondary instrument to pick up. So yeah, that's, that's what I love doing is just developing those guitars so that they offer the least amount of resistance, number one, to my strange way of playing and my anatomy. And number two, I can get things out of them that I just can't get out of, let's say, a Strat or a Les Paul or SG or Telecaster, things like that, you know? When did you get, I mean, I can imagine when Ibanez approached you about having your own guitar, you must have freaked out. Like, oh, are you kidding me? I get my own signature guitar, right? Did they approach you first? Yeah, it was a funny a little thing because... I guess uh, late 70s, I was still working at a guitar store called Secondhand Guitars in Berkeley, California, and I was teaching 40 hours a week. And I was building my own guitars from parts, and they were kind of like Stratocaster parts with humbucking pickups and 
testing new vibrato bars and things like that. And I kind of like the feel. I like the, you know, for guitar players listening, I like the 25 and a half inch scale of the Strat, the Fender guitars. I like the pickups of the Gibson guitars, the humbuckers. I was playing in a kind of a new wave power punk band at the time called the Squares. And I needed those humbucking pickups. So like a lot of people in my generation who had been playing for a long time, we finally said, we want Fender and Gibson together in one guitar. So I was playing those. And at the same time, my buddy Steve I was starting a relationship with Ibanez and he wasn't quite sure about what they were going to be doing. So he called me up one day and he says, can I send you a guitar and tell me what you think about what they're doing? So it was one of the early gems. And I thought, well, this thing's great, you know, is big for me, but Steve's big guy. And, and I could see where it would really work for him. And he had a pickup configuration, same thing as me, 25 and a half inch scale. So we were on the same page as far as the, the structure of the guitar. So I reported back like, yeah, this is great. You can get to, you know, your own crazy shape. They'll put the monkey grip in there for you. You know, that was the thing he was into doing. So he said, well, you know, maybe they want to send you something. Do you want me to put you guys together? So I said, yeah, I wasn't thinking anything, you know, at the time. And surfing had not yet been released. So not of the surf, my first album was out. Was it out? Yeah, it was out. We were maybe three months away, I think, from releasing the surfing album. So they called me and they said they heard a, an advanced copy of the album and they really liked it. And they said, what are you playing? Can we make you something? So I said, well, I got, you know, my own guitars. I got this Kramer. I got this Telly, you know. So they sent me one of their guitars and said, we can start here if you like it and then move on from there. What they did is they sent out this guitar. Uh, it was all black. It was a bit of a Frankenstein, but it had these curves, right? And this is basically their 540 radius. They had this idea that this area, you know, where your arm goes. Sorry, scary arm. I'm not scaring little children away, am I? <laughs> um, you know, that it would be comfortable for the player, both as it, you know, was against your body and as your arm is around it. And I really like that idea because I, that was the one thing that Tellys and Les Pauls, they always bothered me there. So I thought, well, this is kind of a cool idea, but could we, you know, so I had them change the shape a little bit, replace all the electronics, change the frets, change the way that the the fretboard was uh, finished, the radius of the fretboard. I worked with DiMarzio to make some signature pickups to put in there, and we slowly morphed it into the JS guitar, and that, that came out a, a year later. So it's been over 35 years, I think, or 30 years or something like that. Uh, yes, it's eight. So that was that was the year where we started getting stuff together. I think maybe eighty nine was the or ninety maybe was the the first actual year of a model. But we started working together in, in eighty seven. So I mean, like on now on all your records, you just use your guitars, right? It's all your guitars, your designs. Not a hundred percent. Yeah, when when I when I'm putting together. I mean, I'm pointing to these speakers here that you can't see, but when I'm putting together a recording, I think, you know, if I've got my main Ibanez guitar playing the melody and the solo, I'm thinking, what would be a great compliment? And sometimes I think, I think it's a Gibson 335 on the right channel, and I'll put my vintage telly on the left and see how they all play together. Because what you're trying to do is get the timbre of the instruments to enhance each other. Every instrument has a sound, you know, it's almost like when you're 
together a bunch of times and you're tuning them, they all have to work together. So yeah, once in a while I'll do a, a solo or uh, a, a major part on, let's say, a Talia Strat. But 99% of the time it's with the signature JS guitar and I use the Fenders and the Gibsons as sort of an extra, you know, a choral sitar, a slide guitar, lap steel. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I was just thinking about that song, The Doors of Perception, you played on, you played marimbas on there. That's got a Martin acoustic and a, an Ibanez JS a signature acoustic on it. It's got a choral sitar on it. I think I said Dan Electro version. And then all the electric guitars are my signature JS Ibanez model. It took all those different, you know, instruments to, to create that dreamy sound, you know, for that song. Of course, the highlight is your playing. But it's like painting, I guess, p- combining colors. You can, yes. That color came from this, 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 and this. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I got to bring this up. So I had no idea, but I did a little research. So I like that movie Sling Blade, one of the weirdest movies in the world, but brilliant. Yes. You know, with Billy Bob Thornton. And all of a sudden, I read that you wrote, or they used, your song, uh, The Bells of Lal, part one. They did? <laughs> Yeah. You didn't know, dude, I'm reading this. I read this and I went, I had no idea. They said they used the Bells of Lal, part one, which is featured in that eerie scene where Billy Bob Thornton's character is, you know, sharpening the blade of, you know, like a uh, maybe a lawnmower, which is going to be the sling blade to kill Dwight Yoakam, who's being a complete jerk. And and your song is in that eeriest, the creepiest moment of that movie. Did you know that? I didn't. You know, sometimes these licenses for for a short usage, they come and go and the office takes care of them, you know. Because my question was like, dude, how do you feel when you wrote the song? It probably, the intent was not to be in a scene with someone sharpening a blade to kill somebody. <laughs> I'm like, okay, Wow. You can never tell. Remember that guy, David Koresh, that, that crazy Oh, yeah. Guy, right? Yeah. So Stu Ham calls me up one day and he says, man, have you heard that that, that interview, David Koresh and the expose, the, the guy had your posters up in his church and he would he had a band and he would jam, you know? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I hope nobody else knows about that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Your worst nightmare. Yes. You know, <laughs> you, you always hope that it's just, you no know, people use this for the wedding and they use this for some other good yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So let me ask you this though, because this is pretty heavy. So Surfing with the Aliens became this mega successful record, but it has no vocals. I mean, that's like, a, that was a big breakthrough probably in the music business, I mean, you must have been blown away because it was like, it's an instrumental record. It's not, even you, your favorite records were with vocals. And now all of a sudden you have this big, I mean, it charted really high on Billboard, didn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. Six weeks, we stayed in the top 30. That's insane. Yeah, millions of copies uh, around the world. Yeah, multiple platinum stats. Your whole life changed at that moment, didn't it? Yeah, from, I remember in late October, the record came out. I wasn't expecting it to even chart. And, and I think it charted at like 198. And I was totally blown away because I thought, I, yeah, I don't belong on the Billboard charts, you know. Right, right, right. Ridiculous, you know. And the record company was very excited. And then it was like, oh, it's 150 this week. And then the next week, 
I think you're on the first page, you know, you're like, no, oh my God. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on? So the president of the label says that, you know, you got to go out on tour. And I said, uh, let me tell you something. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't have a band. I've never played this <laughs> in front of an audience before. How am I supposed to go on tour? And they're like, well, you figure it out, you know? So yeah. I had to figure out how to put a band together and how to go out. I wound up playing with Jonathan and Stu quite by accident, only because we, we had met at the NAMM show. And so I'm out there on tour. We had a three-week tour, playing like two shows a night, clubs. Even though the record was charging up Billboard, we didn't have any confidence coming back to us from club owners or, you know, certainly we couldn't play theater. So they said, yeah, but, you know, no one knows who you are. So you got to play at seven o'clock, you know, and two shows and whatever. So, and I was losing money just on that three-week tour. It was like, I'd be losing like eight grand a week. I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. And I got a call from one of my managers, Kevin Burns, he, and he's laughing and he's going, you're not going to believe this. This is great. Mick Jagger's looking for a guitar player. I didn't even know like Mick was doing a solo tour. Whoa, that's when that happened? That's when that happened. It was in January of, mm. of 88. And late January, I was in, I think I was in Boston or something like that playing. And he said, can you make it to New York? And I said, well, we have like two, four shows at the bottom line, you know, that little club in the city. Oh, yeah. Um, coming up, I said, I, I guess I could go there and, and do the audition and then hang there, you know, until the band follows. So I just thought, well, I'm never going to get it. I don't look right. I'm, you know, I'm, yeah. just, like, I'm so out of the mainstream. And he had 60, he had auditioned 60 of every well-known guitar player. And wow. the only reason why he was looking for one, because Jeff Beck left. And I'm thinking, you can't replace Jeff Beck. You know what I mean? So I just thought, just do it, shake his hand, and then you can say, I hung out and played some music with Nick, and it'll just be something I can hold to my heart for the rest of my life. So I go there, and it's SIR downtown, and it's fun. Mick comes in. He's a blast, as you know. You know, it's very fun. Yeah. He's going opens his mouth and it's like he's got the biggest voice you've ever heard in your life you know it's like Pavarotti times 10 or something yeah. and accepted it's all rock and roll and blues and right after a couple of songs he says man i really want you in the band will you join the band before my brain was thinking i'm going yeah yeah yep 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 i'm there i'm there. <laughs> <laughs> wow the whirlwind that was happening and then yeah I'm in Rolling Stone magazine, and then three weeks later, we're in Japan. I'm playing the Tokyo Dome, and the record just keeps going up and up and up and up, and it just stays there. I mean, all year we're on that chart, and all of a sudden, after the Jagger tour, I had a couple of theater tours. Suddenly, I'm out of the clubs. I'm playing theaters. I go back to playing with Jagger for the Australia tour in the fall. And the success of the album just keeps rolling along. And then I just roll into recording Flying in a Blue Dream and the success is similar. And now we start to, you know, get invited to Europe and then Europe becomes as big a market as the U.S. Yeah, just crazy uh, reversal of fortune. Why do you, I mean, this is probably a hard question to ask, but why, why was the record label putting lots of money into promoting it or was it just that right time for people wanted to hear this music that you'd made. I mean, I have to think that's it. You know, we talked about teamwork before, you know, you ne you can never you say that it, you did it. You know, you can never claim credit. <laughs> so, because I know how we struggled making the record, 
we spent twice as much money as we were supposed to. A third of the budget was paid for by me bartering studio time for you know, my studio session time for free studio time. We had to remix half the record because the studio misaligned the stereo bus. I knew it was just some hardship that went into it. And my producer, John Cooneberry, and I really felt that they'd run us out of town once we were done. You know, they'd be like, thanks for the album. Don't call us back. You know, <laughs> Exactly. But you know who saved the record, to tell you the truth, was DJs. And it was like Redbeard in Texas and, and, and Chicago, I know Redbeard, Loop in yeah. Chicago and all the, the New York stations and a KLOS in Los Angeles. Oh, my God. They would play Surfing with the Alien one side, the whole record, without interruption on Sunday nights. I mean, this was a big deal. So the radio stations, the terrestrial radio, because it was pre-internet, really championed the album. And I went everywhere. I played at every radio station. I did every interview. I cut every ID. <laughs> I did an enormous amount of work because I thought this is unheard of, like instrumental music getting embraced by radio. So I did whatever they asked. And I was grateful to be asked to do any of that work. It was great. Well, you know, the other thing is for people who don't know, Billboard, the top 200 albums. I mean, you're competing with Elton John, The Stones, whatever. You're competing with it. That, that is the chart. When people say they're like number one on this chart or number one, Billboard top 200 albums or Billboard top 100 singles, that is the godfather. That is when you're up there and you're in the top 40, you're the top 40 best records in the entire country and in, in the entire world for that matter because everybody's trying to get on that chart. So that's huge, man. That's That's amazing. Great story, I mean. I mean, you've collaborated with a lot of artists, like you know Mick Jagger and everybody, and it's kind of like you're like the uh, the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. You know, there's a lot of now you've influenced so many people, and and the the pop, you know, the, the music culture in general. I mean, do you even step back and go like, oh my God, I've all this, my influence has gone out to all these, all these like Steve Vai. I mean, he you were teaching him at one point, so that must feel really good. Steve and I grew up in the same town and we went to the same high school. Our lead singers were brothers in our bands. And we, you know, we, we took music theory from the same teacher. I taught him for about two and a half, three years. I mean, we were young. He was 12. I was just 15. So I was just, a, what, a year and a half ahead of him as a guitar player. So it was fun. And when I moved out to the Berkeley, California Bay Area, I didn't really want to teach anymore, but I, it was just one of those things. I lived across the street from a guitar store. And since I never bought anything there, the owner suggested I do something for it, <laughs> like teach, you know, so I just sit there and play all day. And he'd say, you're pretty good. You should be a teacher, you know? And that's where I started teaching Kirk Hammett and Alex Skolnick. That's incredible. Larry Lalonde. And yeah, it's just like an enormous amount of fun kids yeah, we're going to change the world with music. I I was the luckiest guitar teacher ever. That's incredible. I mean, you've influenced so much, and now you're influencing me. I'm going <laughs> to start playing guitar on stage because nobody knows the difference until no, I hit a note. No, as soon as I hit a note, they'll go, "That ain't Joe." <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you you know your music career is amazing. I'm grateful to be part of it because it's this is like incredible for me on so many levels. And not just on the music level, but you're this incredible human being and this leader, and it all stems from you. 
And I'm just saying, man, I've been on a lot of tour buses and a lot of planes. Working and playing music with you is 100% a gift and amazing for me. I, I just love it. I am so excited to be doing this with you. Grateful I did two albums, completely different, and we're playing live, and it's just, it's, I feel like it's just growing now. And you've got this painting thing going on. So what motivates you to keep doing better and better and better? And I don't think you're a retiring type of guy like me. I'm not, I don't even know what that word means. So what is that thing that, you know, makes you want to keep practicing, improving? It's just who you are? I guess so. I, I still wake up every morning and I want to, I want to write what's in my heart. I want to explore, you know, the feelings I have and turn them into music. I'm really curious if my fingers are still going to work. Am I, it's just like when I was a kid, I, I remember picking up the guitar and saying, okay, I've got to try to be as good as I was yesterday because I have to prove to myself that I'm moving forward. <laughs> you know, I'm not moving backwards. So I still have that sort of, you know, nervousness or anxiety about that. And so I, I'm drawn to the guitar. I want to pick it up and play it and see where I'm at. And then before I know it, I'm lost in a, a new quest, a new song, a new riff, a new melody, something. I hope it never changes. I love it. I, I love living a creative life. It's a bit, the artistic life is a bit creative. You know, it's not like we have real jobs, but in a way it's a, once you realize that you're supposed to make music for people, that then you begin to say, okay, so it is a kind of a job. So I should work at it. I, I need to be disciplined and I need to apply myself. I can't just sit back and play video games. <laughs> I'm going to work on it all the time. So it's great, man. I'm telling you what, it's like, I know you, we've hung out, but we've never had this such an intense conversation. And I feel like I know you even more now. And I mean, I'm really excited about what you're going to write next. And hopefully I'll be the guy playing on those songs. I hope so. Then it's a done deal. <laughs> I'll talk to, hey, can I play with that guy? He said yes. <laughs> anyway, Joe, man, thank you so much, man. I feel like I know you more in this podcast we just did, which was a gift that I didn't expect. So, oh, dude, I'm going to see you in Europe. <laughs> Let's do more, dude. And I will see you in Oslo. We got to work on our accent, whatever yes, that is. Whatever that is. <laughs> I think the secret is uh, herring. We just eat eat herring and drink. Yeah, some, something of that nature. What do they drink up there? Whatever it is. Vodka. You know, on the last tour, we didn't drink enough, right? Dude, we were the worst drinkers. I think that's the worst example of drinking I've ever done on a tour. And you do, were doing the same thing. Yeah, no, no alcohol. Zero alcohol. Yeah. Zero. It was unbelievable. Well, we'll make up for it in Europe. Yes. <laughs> All right, Joe, take care, dude. I'll see you very soon. I'm so excited to be playing that music in Europe. Kenny, I love you. I love you, Kenny. Thank Anytime you. you want to talk some more, you know where I am. All right. There might be a part two. <laughs> Good. See ya. Bye.